to the wall If she's gone I can't go on Feeling two foot small Everywhere people stare Each and every day I can see them laugh at me And I hear them say Hey, you've got to hide your love away Hey, you've got to hide your... All right. Hello. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Wages of Cinema. I'm Jack. Now... Uh, tonight, I'm trying something a little bit different, which I actually have not uh, really done before. Um, this is uh, uh, my first movie review podcast that Andrew actually won't be on. Uh, he couldn't make it tonight to the movie. Uh, so in his place, I have someone who actually has been on a few podcasts, and she's succeeded her trial by fire. She's... <laughs> She is, when I ask her her name, she says, I am no one. And uh, A girl has no name. A girl has no name, thank you, yes. So now she is ready to go into the marketplace and kill with her <laughs> podcasting skills um, as a podcasting ninja. So I am pleased to have as my special guest tonight my beautiful, awesome, hugtastic wife, Corey. Hello. Yes. Um, and I think it's appropriate in a way that we are doing this review together after uh, what we experienced. The artistic equivalent of that famous Chris Rock bit, married and bored, single and lonely. <laughs> you, wow, do we even need to do a review now? <laughs> like, you, like why, why even talk about this? Oh yeah, because it is one of the best films I have ever seen. Have you ever been on your own before? No, never. Your last relationship lasted how many years? Twelve. Sexual preference? Women. Any children? No. And the dog? This is my brother. He was here a couple of years ago, but he didn't make it. Good morning. 44 days left. Breakfast is served. As you understand from your brother's experience, if you fail to fall in love with someone during your stay here, You'll turn into an animal. I'm not even kidding. Like, I I can't stress enough for you listeners how unexpectedly masterful this film is. Yeah, I'm sorry to disappoint anyone looking for a controversy-filled podcast where we have a spirited debate about the merits of the film, because I also think it was pretty freaking spectacular. Yes. So, so I think, uh, well, first of all, what, what is this movie, The Lobster? If You might have possibly have seen a trailer for it here and there if you've been in theaters lately. Um, it comes from a studio which I've I've come to realize is one of the best studios out right now it's this group called a24 and they've put out like a lot of really challenging movies and actually two movies specifically which i almost want to group in a lump together but even before i say that like last year uh they put out uh ex machina uh, which was their biggest hit but uh this year they put out um the witch and uh a green room Wow. Yeah. So I feel like this company is pretty much like the made like what Miramax was in the early nineties, that's you know, forget that. That is now this. This company is putting out the top tier artistic work. But but let me let me get back to those two other movies because I want to talk about them as well in this conversation. But that's gonna be a ways away. Um so the lobster uh well it follows uh, Colin Farrell, uh, or, or at least somewhat follows him, and I'll get to that in a moment too. He uh, just did he did his wife divorce him or his wife died? I think we're led to believe his wife divorced him. Oh, okay. I, I thought maybe, but there was the the guy with the limp. His wife was dead. That's probably what you're thinking of. Okay, and uh, so Colin Farrell, uh, he's in this society where um, very quickly you realize that. 
uh, he like people who in this case uh, kind of is 45 days you get turned into an animal of your own choosing though isn't that nice imagine you could have had a society where they choose our seemingly idyllic marriage breaks apart and we are sadly divorced when when we get into a bergman-esque uh (laughs) scenes from a marriage like yelling and having like (laughs) you know tearing at our you know like spiritual walls when i finally dislodge you of all your swarm mareships and you divorce me oh come on you're gonna bring that up on the podcast (laughs) all right fine i admit it i admit it i use the swarm app and i check in at places sometimes i'm not there (laughs) i admit it okay i get to be turned into a cockroach so when we go to the hotel after our divorce, yes. neither of us will ever be able to find love again because we love each other so much. Aww. So what animal will you be? Aw, hashtag I love you. Um, <laughs> I, that's a good question. So we're getting this out of the way right now. I was going to leave this almost to the end. What animal would I be? I came up with mine over the course of the movie. All right. Well, I didn't, it's funny because I wasn't really thinking about that question. I was more you know, fully, wholeheartedly, in- harrowingly engaged into this movie. You're um, too intellectual for questions like this. I, you know, I would be a turtle. Oh, my God. Did you think turtle, too? Yes. Oh. I love you so much. <laughs> Specifically, I wanted to be one of those super long-lived turtles yeah, from the well, Galapagos Islands. Well, you know what's funny, though? Like, this almost ties into the movie because you know, the title of the movie comes from how Colin Farrell's asked by – he. first of all, he goes to this hotel, uh, which, which is actually set up for uh, people who have been uh, recently divorced or widowed or widowers or whatever – and, you know, they have to find a mate in 45 days. And uh, the hotel staff asks him, so what will you want to be? A lobster. And they ask him some of the reasons. And he says, well, uh, you know, I love the water. I used to love to swim and deep sea dive. And uh, uh, and also, and this was the key thing. He said they live very long lives and they're always very fertile. Um, so in a way, I think the turtle part is part of that because turtles live a very long time yes those turtles from the galapagos live hundreds of years so now i hope you're ready though for all of my like like intense uh sexual uh engagements (laughs) i mean if you if anybody ever googles uh turtle sex we've uh, both watched some turtle sex we yeah i've seen like i don't know if i've seen it in person i think you have Oh, yes. Yeah, you've seen, like, because if you watch a turtle sex video, like, the, the you know, the tur- it's all turtle st- t- doggy style is turtle style. You know, the t- <laughs> one turtle gets on top of the other, and the man is the one that does all of the yelling. The yeah. turtle, the, the male turtle is like, ah, ah. it's hilarious. <laughs> and meanwhile, the woman turtle is always like, Meh. Like the turtle, like the female turtle doesn't make a, uh, a and reaction. the female turtle is always walking away, and the man is like shuffling behind her. Yeah. <laughs> man. Wow, that's so crazy. Now, is there a specific type of turtle or tortoise? Well, I'd want to be one of those giant, super long-lived turtles. Oh, okay, because I, because for me, I don't know. I'm torn because on the one hand, there is that point of like a Galapagos turtle, but also like. You know, I think back to my childhood, and uh, here's full disclosure time, guys. Uh, when I was a kid, I had pet turtles, because that was how intense my uh, fandom was for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. My I mom, had a pet turtle, too. Yeah, well, you lived out in the country. You could just find a yeah, turtle. Yeah, my parents captured a turtle for me in the wild. Yeah. They caught it for me. Did that have anything to do with Ninja Turtles? Yes. Okay, good. Well, for me, I had four, so ha! <laughs> I and I got to name them Leonardo, Michelangelo, Donatello, and Raphael. So game set match. I am the ultimate nerd. <laughs> um, all right, so let's get back to the movie though. Um, yes. So what happens is that uh, Colin Farrell, uh, you know, and he meets a few other people there: uh, John C. Riley and Ben Whishaw, uh, who you might remember as Q from the Bond movies. He's they're both uh, also men trying to look for people. And uh, what, what I love is that the movie sets up how, well, I mean, 
the, I don't know where to start with this because there's so much to talk about. Um, but everybody is looking for certain characteristics. And it almost seems like you almost can't find a mate unless your partner has the same characteristics you're looking for or that you have. Yes, typically the couples match based on one superficial, usually physical characteristic. Yeah, it's like I have a limp or I um I I I talked no not talk too much. I um I have nosebleeds is one yes. of the main ones. Or I need glasses. Yeah, and and you learn pretty fast too that at this at this hotel there are some very strict rules as far as, you know, very, um, I'd almost call them draconian, but that goes beyond it. It's almost, uh, you know, if, if, if in case you're suddenly f- thinking about Kafka in terms of the metamorphosis ideal, the idea of like, I woke up one morning and discovered I was a cockroach. Well, I mean, this kind of thing could happen in this society. Um, I, um, the... Oh, where was I going with this? Uh, I think that, like, the rules of this hotel, it's, like, so crazy. Because you have, like, John C. Riley at one point gets caught, like, he, he's discovered that he was masturbating. And he, the, the hotel staff, uh, spoilers, they take his hand and put it in a toaster. Yes. <laughs> and the whole time, it's just... Oh man, it is just so like crazy and surreal. Like the the way that the hotel kind of operates as far as having courtship rituals, having like a dance put to really bad droning music. Okay, I have a question for you. Okay. Now, I am horrendous with name pronunciation, so I'm only going to use the phrase the director. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll try my best to say what the director's name is. His, I, from what I could tell, his name is Yorgos Lanthimos. He, he's a Greek director, so you have a little bit of blood with him. <laughs> Greek, Corey has a little bit of Greek heritage. so I do. So, there you go. so given... What I was interested about, what fasc- one of the many things, one of the many, many things that fascinated me about this movie was how the completely ridiculous premise was delivered in a very straightforward, deadpan, minimalistic way. Yeah, there's no, like... The, and- the acting is a big part of that. Like, the a- like everything is just very straight down the line like yeah deadpan is the word to use because there's no almost no other way to use it but it's almost more than that it's almost at times like the like the life power of these of these people are drained away like i mean i know you haven't seen any of these movies but a couple of times i thought about um movies by like robert bresson who's famous for his kind of minimalist acting to where like his whole ideal was I'm going to have pure cinema where we don't have like these crazy things called emotions. But the thing about this movie though, is that you like, cause in his movies, he often casts like non-professionals and tried to dream them of acting. But here you have Colin Farrell and you have John C. Riley and you have Rachel Weiss actors who, you know, they can't help but be emotional. I would, I would want to ask you, given, given what we're presented as courtship in the hotel, and courtship is presented as awkward, stilted conversation yes. with people you are select that you are matched with. Given, as I said, you share a superficial similarity. So, yes. in the universe of this film, I want to ask you, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. <laughs> Bop our heads in um, unison. Um, how does this movie define what it means to be in love? Well, it's a good question. I mean, this, like for me, the, first of all, this whole movie, it, I mean, the obvious comparison, uh, and I think my, when my mom saw this, she she compared it a little bit to 1984, mm-hmm. and I got that a little bit. I got a lot of dystopian, Yes. Uh, like this is a dystopian society. 
that's the thing about this very dystopian like again the idea that you have all of these completely rigid set rules and not only that like because what happens though and i don't know if this is exactly a spoiler i mean you see it kind of in the trailer in a way colin farrell if you if you if you've seen the movie keep listening if you haven't seen the movie go away there you go um if you know he escapes the hotel and he goes into the woods and the and he meets up with like because earlier on the movie we kind of we see all this like this slow motion like sequence where there's like a hunt and people are being shot in the woods and at first you're like what the hell is going on then you discover that they're shooting loners they're shooting people who haven't like they're they they've rejected all of the rules of society and they're in the woods and colin farrell joins up and meets with these people they're led by uh leia sado she was in uh she's also in the latest bond movie um i and what but what happens is though in that section of the movie it, it turns on its head but it's also it's just as savage a critique about like if you are alone you cannot love if you are married like you know i it's like maybe you could love so the, your, to your question i would say that love in this society is almost like a uh um uh it's almost like it's a it's almost like a coincidence or it's almost like something that uh is con it can it, it might be a consequence you know but it's not something that can be exactly sought out for again the idea is like you have to have a mate you must have a mate a lot of that is down to the satire also of obviously what you know that in society you must get married if you are to be successful i feel like that's what this movie is kind of sav- savagely talking about like so many people in this world are in loveless marriages it so and so and if that's the case what happens if there actually is love like that's looked down upon it's in a way it's almost looked down upon in the marriage section too what i was thinking about this movie and what I was thinking about in terms of how it defines love was one of the things I think the movie was wrestling with is to what extent is love a deliberate choice and to what extent is love an uncontrollable emotion? Yeah. You know what I thought of not during the movie, but on the way home a little, just a little bit. Um, Eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Good comparison. Now, and the reason for that is because, you know, in that movie, uh, also a sci-fi type of story, a little bit more grounded in, in reality than this one. But it uses its premise, you know, to talk about how, uh, you know, you can erase some your memory of this particular person so that you don't have to feel that pain. You don't have to feel all of the things that you felt with that person. But then the whole thing is like, well, what if I'm meant to be in love with this person? What? what if I'm what if I'm meant to have this connection with them? And you know, you see you know, a lot of great movies that I really respond to address this kind of need for human connectivity that's almost like, you know, you, you can't undo that hardwiring. That also goes back, I think, to uh nineteen eighty four a bit. I was thinking at some point in this movie, my college roommate her parents had been married in an arranged marriage. Yes. So they were openly not in love at the time of their marriage. There was yeah. no pretense of them being in love at and the time been, of their marriage. And that's been a thing for thousands of years. Yeah. So, but she told me once that her parents grew to love each other mm. and they viewed marriage as instilling the life instilling positive life skills because you learn to love someone post marriage yes so i think well, i was thinking about that and i was thinking all right what is the purpose of marriage hmm. what what is the what benefits what social benefits does marriage confer because this dystopian universe is one where people are required to be constantly married. Yes, yes, there's constantly. Uh, yes, married. you have scenes in this movie like um like at one point um 
you know, uh, there there are moments where like the the loners in the woods they have to go out uh, into the world to get things. Uh, they can't just subsist on stuff in the woods. And and like like for, if, if Colin Farrell he's like at the mall, like a cop will come up to him and ask him like, uh, hey, where's your wife? Uh, you know, if your wife, you know, where's your wife? You know, you have to show me your marriage license. Pro- yeah. It, it, it's almost like. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think of a comparison to something in the real world that's like that. Like, um, it's like if you're lonely, it's the same thing as like if you're, uh, I don't know, if you're like drinking in public or you're like homeless. You're <laughs> you're singled out by the law as something that must be corrected. Well, that one character was John, the name of the guy with the limp, I think. John? Oh, uh, you mean uh, Ben Wishaw? Yeah, the character's name. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Well, they say in the movie, his wife has been dead for six days. Yes. And he already has to go back and find another spouse. So you, in this dystopian universe, are constantly required to be in a romantic relationship. And as I was watching this movie, I thought about all the various financial, social mm-hmm. purposes marriage is served. And I thought, too, of the tremendous changes that the institution of marriage has undergone over the past 50 years. And I think this movie is very critical of the institution of marriage, but I think it also encourages the viewer to ask open-ended questions about what is the purpose of marriage? What is the purpose of romantic love? What is romantic love comprised of? What does it mean to love someone? And and deeper than that, it's also about what is loneliness? Yes. Like, you know, because there's as much criticism in this world about people who are alone, who may choose to be single. You know, when when he joins up in the woods, you know, I... Like, there was a part of me that was kind of looking forward to him escaping from the hotel. My thought was not unlike, uh, again, in these dystopian stories, you have that often. Like, in Fahrenheit 451, uh, you know, the fireman leaves his uh, post to suddenly join up with the Resistance, who are going to be all about books. I mean, I don't know. Did you read Fahrenheit 451? Like, 20 years ago. All right. I mean, I, I read it, like, 16 years ago. It's just... it. It's one of those books that's just stayed with me my whole life, so I, it's pretty fresh. But, but the point is, you always have that moment where it flips, and all of a sudden it's like, ooh, we're gonna have this revolutionary force. But what I, what made me like, fall head over heels for this movie, um, you might say what constrained the confines of my heart, not <laughs> unlike the main characters of the movie, was, um, was the fact that, um. The Leia Sadu character to me is almost like the real villain, because she's somebody who is alone, and you know she'll go out into the world and visit her parents and put on this facade that I'm oh I'm I'm leading a very happy normal life, but then immediately she'll go into the woods and you know really fuck with people like put them in graves and keep them under dirt like I um by the way. Do, did that confuse you for a moment? Because I let me ask you that. Because for I, all right, here's where we get really in the. I don't know how you can spoil this movie. If, yeah. if you've you've either seen it or you're not. But there's a moment where she buries someone in a grave, and I thought that character was gonna die. Do you know what I mean? Like yes. I didn't know that it was like a form of punishment. I thought that it was like oh my god, this is the end of this character. But then the character returns a couple scenes later, and I was like, oh, okay. I I didn't think the character was going to die. I thought it was a way of her character demonstrating her mastery Mm. over this other character. Yeah. Like, she's like... like, Because I love that contrast, this idea... like, Because, yeah, at first you see, like, the head of the hotel, this really Mm. uptight woman, like, out of the out of, like, the hospital in Clockwork Orange, who's all like, well, we are going to drain, uh, we are going to make you better by, again, <laughs> I know you haven't 
Uh, we'll, we'll correct that one day, by the way. <laughs> I will put you in a hotel and make you see Clockwork Orange. <laughs> and if you don't watch Clockwork Orange within 45 days, you get turned into, uh, I don't know, I'll, you get turned into a Trump supporter. I, don't know. <laughs> I may or may not have fallen asleep during a Clockwork Orange. Yeah, and maybe we won't be married for so much longer. Um, <laughs> no, but the point I'm getting at, though, is that, yeah, sh- that, that hotel manager... You know, she seems pretty brutal and pretty steadfast. Um, and yet, there's a curious scene where Leia Seydoux, um, you know, in kind of one of those things like a re- like a revolutionary act type thing, she goes into the hotel at night, breaks into their room, wakes up the hotel manager and her husband. I guess, I don't know if they were both managers. I don't know, whatever. And... Like it poses like this these series of questions at gunpoint. Like, do you love your husband? Do you love your wife? Uh, on a scale from like one to fifteen, uh, and it it re- just genuinely surprised me the fact that this movie went that to that distance of really savagely critiquing anything that doesn't have to do with having an open, free heart. I know that sounds corny, but I feel like that was like this is a very underneath all of the savagery and all of the horror because this is also kind of a horror movie. It has a very tender soul. Well, yeah, I do think the movie is very critical of the loner outposts as well. And yeah, I think if there's one thing this movie wants to tell you is if there's one thing it's advocating for. It's for spontaneous, obligation-free yes. interactions. Yeah, the, the idea that I could just meet a person, and we get to talking. And and initially, it's funny, because initially Colin Farrell, he, you know, he, it, I also really admired how it showed that he, he can't, there's a part of him that can never quite break out of the programming that he's had. Like, you know, because he initially is, you know, he asks people in the loner group about their nearsightedness because that's him, too. So it's like even though he's broken free, there's a lot of him that like how much of a prisoner are you if you've become if you're from the society, if you're or you can't just break free of it. I am so glad you said that. And I want to now talk in detail about something that's near the end of the movie. Okay. So, again, it's kind of hard to spoil this movie, but I personally would consider what I'm about to say a spoiler. Go go ahead. Towards the end of the movie, Rachel Weisz's character, by now, Colin Farrell and Rachel Weisz have fallen in love. Yes. When the head of the loners finds out... She blinds Rachel Weiss. Yes. She brings her to a doctor and has her blinded. Yeah. And after that, she knows that before Rachel Weiss and Colin Farrell, we think that theirs is a true love. But yes. we also see after this that the fact that they're no longer mutually nearsighted derails their entire relationship. And there's this scene where Colin Farrell's trying to find another way to bond with her about equally shallow stuff. (laughs) He asks her, do you like blackberries? Do you speak German? So what happens when you're saying that for all the, you know swooniness of the Colin Farrell Rachel Weiss love story yeah. he is he is still trapped by the conventions of his society and as soon as she loses her sight so they no longer have the deep bond of needing corrective yeah. eyewear yeah and now the very ending of this movie is somewhat ambiguous but I definitely interpreted it to mean that they would not be together. No, yeah, it's like she's waiting for something, and um, and it's not like the kind of ending which, uh, um, well, not to pat myself on the back or, or feel for a place to put 
<laughs> lotion uh, as a character does in this movie. I mean, I've you know there are sometimes ambiguous endings where even though you're not told a specific thing, you kind of get the sense of it. Here, it's more like you you know like a number of things have happened, but the amount of time that the shot lasts with this character not with the other person it's almost like well yeah yeah so i interpreted that ending to mean that they've broken up because yeah Colin Farrell... wh- whether whether uh you know whether whether he's dead or whether he just left you know because he could have died i took that to be maybe one of the things that could have happened I interpreted it as... That he ran away? He couldn't do it. He couldn't do what Mm. he felt he needed to do. Because Colin Farrell believes, comes to believe, the only way his relationship with Rachel Weisz can continue is if he becomes blind as well. So you think it's a pretty cynical ending? So I do think the ending is fairly cynical because I believe he he couldn't make himself blind... But yet he couldn't break from his social programming enough to allow himself to date a blind woman. Yeah. Well, it's cynical. Also, I feel like there's a big level of tragedy to it, though. Yeah, well, it is very tragic. Yeah, not on. You know, it's it's like almost to like some like you know like Shakespearean level or something where like um, or not even Shakespeare like. Well, I wouldn't say Oedipus, but there is the blind element in that. <laughs> Very different uh, love story there. Um, no incest in this one. No, no, no that, that's not quite a thing. Although it's funny that there's the joke uh, that's a, a kind of a joke where when he first goes to the hotel and he's having like his kind of question-answer session to be admitted, um, you know, and he, you know, he's asked how, you know, how long he's with his partner, and he says how long, and uh, then he mentions that. You know, she asks, "Are you heterosexual, or homosexual?" He says, "Heterosexual." I had one homosexual experience in college, um, and he has kind of a pause, and it's like, "Is there a bisexual option available?" <laughs> and they're like, "No, the bisexual option has been discontinued for was it organizational reasons?" Yeah, they said operational Oper- defects. Oper- I love that because first of all, that's such a euphemism. <laughs> when you say something is operational blank, that's like how shell shock became a euphemism in like the the korean war it was called operational exhaustion (laughs) which you know that that sounds like something happens to your car and you know so i i love that because you you would almost question like well why aren't if there aren't any bisexuals what if a man is attracted to a man in this world and that's a really that's a that's a point that i'm starting to even now just talking about thinking like yeah, what if there are people in this hotel who, yeah, I'm supposed to be a man with this woman. And by the way, everybody is in uniform, too. Yes. That's another key element, too, that um, that contributes to, um, to me, I almost called it, there was a element, large element of alienation yes. as well working here. Uh, that was something I really responded to. It made me think back uh, also to get artsy film world uh reference here uh the films of rw fastbinder um he dealt so much with that this felt a lot this felt in a lot of ways like if fastbender was alive today um and he was asked to like make his own 1984 this might be it because he dealt often with people who were very like completely disconnected and yet there was a lot of heart behind it um yeah and but the point is i wonder like you have all these people in these uniforms and they have, they have to, they must bind with this person or they're turned into an animal. Like what if, yeah. What if, what if they're attracted to the same sex that probably that, you know, and in a society like that, it creates, you know, people who are in the closet about something, they become even more repressed. They become even more inward. Um, you know, maybe the problem with that one woman that Colin Farrell first hooks up with, she wanted to play for the other side. <laughs> well, they did offer the opportunity for hotel guests to choose homosexual as an option. That's true. We never see that. I wonder if there was, no. like, another part of the hotel where, like, they did that. Maybe they just couldn't get to it in this movie. 
So, I do think alienation is an important theme in this film, and I think in critiquing the institution of marriage in the hotel half, and in critiquing singledom, and being single in the second half in the woods, what... I think the authors, and through what I think is the ultimate tragic conclusion of the only sincere love portrayed in this movie between Colin Farrell and Rachel Weisz, is the idea that expectations for how a specific relationship should be destroy relationships yeah and alienate people from each other so yeah the expectations that all all these characters have that their other will be just like them which is what a lot of people do i'm sorry to cut you off but that's what a lot of people who get into marriages they want to find common ground and yet after you know after a certain point or even right away if it's arranged um that like breaks down. Yeah, so I think I think what the director is trying to communicate is this idea that intimacy is only possible in unforced, completely organic, obligation-free, expectation-free relationships. Yeah. And I think he argues that it is virtually impossible to construct relationships like that. Yeah. And and even though the setting is very fantastical, it's obvious the director wants us to draw parallels to our own lives. Yeah. Well, I think that a large part of that, again, it's a lot of it's down to tone. Like, there were certain moments early on, it didn't happen all the way through the movie, but I almost felt like maybe he was going a little bit for a Wes Anderson-y tone. By that, I mean, like... This whole thing in a lot of Wes Anderson movies where characters are very formal, like mm-hmm. a lot of it's formalism, the idea that you can't break out of your constraints, so to speak, like emotionally or in the way you talk mm-hmm. or uh, in certain ways, the, the way the movie looks. I mean, I mean, I, I don't know how if you were how much you were responding to the movie visually, but a lot of this is very like formal as far as how it's shot. You know, it's not like very messy a lot of the shots of it are very like planned to the note, you know? And I feel like, but then it doesn't last the whole time, but I feel like visually speaking, it also communicates a lot to the alienation and this whole thing of not being able to, uh, ha- you know, the, the, the way that people are trying to find their common ground alienates them even more. Exactly. If that, if that makes sense, like, you know, the, like the way that uh, the John character, like, at, you know, pretends that he has a bloody nose, and, and you know, to try to get like his, this girl, and does she, I, I, you know, do you th- like? Here's a good question: Do you think that they, do you think their marriage will fall apart when uh, Colin Farrell tells tells reveals that he's it's a lot pack of lies? <laughs> well, or I maybe mean... she doesn't care at that point. After that scintillating conversation they had about the weight of basketballs on their romantic trip, <laughs> I would say that yes. she probably doesn't want to believe that the nosebleeds are fake. Because I think if she acknowledges they're fake, they have to break up. Mm. Kind of like how Colin Farrell has to distance himself from Rachel Weiss when she loses her eyesight. So yeah, because he's still pro- like, un- you know, whether he's conscious of it or not, he's still programmed in yeah. that way that society has kind of made him. That's why, to me, it felt kind of tragic—the fact that he can't get out of that. It is very tragic because theirs is the only relationship that seems romantic and intimate and desirable. Every other relationship in this film is portrayed as cold and stiff mm. and awkward. Yeah. One, one, one thing I found really interesting, too, was the fact that, um, and talking about sort of how the, like, the, the process of the movie and, like, certain things that make it a little bit, you know, different from 
anything else that's out there right now is the narration. Yeah. And often, you know, movie narration is one of those things that's just sometimes impossible. I mean, it, it can very you know there's the number of films in just history that use narration well it's very small um i mean it's not like i i'm not going to say i can only count on two hands but you know you have scorsese and you have uh you know he's he's the top example and then you have you know a number of good examples but i feel like this is a really unique awesome example because the way that the narration works that also evolves in the movie because at first, it almost feels novelistic, um, and maybe that was part of what I also thought with the Wes Anderson thing, like the way that like the the intro to Royal Tenenbaums is very novelistic. Because you feel because it's like Rachel Weisz narrating um, Colin Farrell his whole goings on at this hotel. That and what I love too is it's very that has a detached feeling, the way that like she's describing things going on that we see yeah. in front of us but it but it but it works here sometimes it doesn't work in other movies but in this case it has a point and then halfway through the movie Rachel Weiss is introduced and then it carries more of a personal level and to the point when you finally realize what all this narration has actually been which is just like I was sitting in my seat like yeah. grasping like my throat like oh my god you grabbed me and... I did I was so like for a movie that is like meant to be really showing emo like emotional disengagement in society, I was like so on the edge of my seat. Yes. This movie is very gripping. And also, I feel like in my comments I have not done justice to how delightfully weird <laughs> this movie is. Oh, oh, it's a It, it is so crazy. Oh yeah. There's I should also mention among the many things of this movie, it's also funny, but it's funny in the way that the way that I pictured it in my head. It's not unlike when if you start laughing in this movie, you'll turn into a victim of the Joker. <laughs> like you will get the Joker's new and improved product smileys. And by the end of the movie, you will look like the dead reporter in uh, Tim Burton's Batman. Um, like, cause this is like, you laugh and then you feel horrified. Yes, there's there's definitely humor in this movie, but it's very dark humor. Pitch and... black humor. Like and it's hard not to have laughs when you have certain people like uh, John C. Riley there who's you know like so good in this movie. Um with, with by the way a lisp so he'd be quite good for you. Yeah, in this <laughs> It's hard to say, because on the one hand, I have a lisp, and John C. Riley has a lisp, so that means maybe he should be my husband. But on the other hand, I wear glasses, and Colin Farrell's character wears glasses. So what would you say is the more defining aspect of me, my lisp or my glasses? I'd say your shortness. Okay, so I have to date a shorty. Well, so. you don't want... But the, but that's the catch-22, because you, like, even though you're short... You don't like short men. Well, I've bought into the evil cultural programming of society that has taught me that short men are undesirable, even though I've dated short men. But yes. actually, the first thing I said to you when we came out of this movie is I had two I had like two relationships before I shacked up with this lovely gentleman over here. I won't. Um, and they both wore glasses. So the first thing I said to him is, well, you don't wear glasses, but both my ex-boyfriends wore glasses. Yes. So does that mean that I made the wrong decision? Now, here's my counter to that. I gave, I had some time to think about this on the ride home. Now, I don't have perfect vision. That's true. Like, my the eyesight in one of my eyes is actually pretty weak. So I think that... In a way, I am endearing because I appear to have, like, perfect vision, but secretly I need to have glasses over one eye. That's true. Your eyesight is not 20-20. It's not bad enough to require glasses. So, not only, so not only am I a, uh, yeah, so not only do I have partial nearsightedness, 
I need a monocle, which makes me a badass. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, there's... <laughs> There's these scenes where characters have to introduce themselves to the entire audience of single people, yes. and they have to identify their defining characteristic. And yes. again, the few characters we see doing this, their defining characteristic is something physical. Yeah, and I can't, well, like I said, and I can't stress enough, this might turn off certain people who come to this movie. That's why I would say watch the trailer before you see the movie. So you get a sense of the tone. Uh, if you want to go in blind, that's fine. But I would say know what you're getting with that because, like, especially in those introductions on stage uh, with John, um, you know, again, you're, as you say, his wife literally just died in the past week. Like, there's a part of him that, yeah, he he's completely deadpan and he's drained of life. But there's also, like, whenever I see that in a movie, I... I if the actor's really good, I think, but you have so much pain underneath. Like you're describing the fact that you have a limp and, um, and your wife had a limp and it's just like, Oh God, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> but again, a lot of this comes back to the idea that, you know, in a typical world, um, again, if I, in the hypothetical world, if you weren't there, mm -hmm. I would have people in my family or I might have friends saying, why don't you get, why don't you get a girl? Why don't you get somebody? Um, or even, uh, you know, in like Goodfellas, going back to that, the whole thing with uh, Joe Pesci and his mom. <laughs> why don't you get yourself a nice girl? Man, can you imagine Joe Pesci's character? In <laughs> I can't, but it's just suddenly, I just had the image and it's giving me a lot of pleasure. Well, he'd be such a good hunter, he would be in the hotel forever. Yes, good point. Yeah, that's the other weird, like, again, among the weird little rules, when uh, guests of the hotel go on their hunts and kill the lonely people uh, in the woods, the more deaths they rack up, the longer they can stay, which... God, that is such a cruel, what a horrible thing. But again, so part of uh, Lanthimos's uh, satire. Like this is like this is such a vicious satire. This almost feels like, you know, what this movie is in a way too. This feels like the kind of movie that I bet Michael Haneke wishes he could make. Yeah. Does that? Did, I don't know. Did yeah. That, you know the the fact when you watch Funny Games, how that's like one of the those movies that really tries to hammer in its point about like society and it just falls flat on its face yeah this movie is spectacular and it is a lot more to say and it's a lot more biting than something like funny game it has mountains to say like visually it is so like unlike anything i've seen in a long long time like visually unique and again just down to so many great details like um, you know, so many great little moments, like, you know, I, yeah, I just, uh, I, I would say, I mean, I don't want to go on too long about this movie. Also, the acting, I should say, is also awesome, because Colin Farrell, I have a question about that. What do you think of Colin Farrell in this movie? Because I know sometimes with him, he could be, he makes some good choices, sometimes he doesn't. I thought he did very well. Yeah. I thought he did very, very well. It was a very low-key role. And I think for a movie like this, I think it would probably be pretty hard to act in this movie well because the performances are so low-key that if you don't hit it exactly right, they're going to be boring. It's tricky. It's tricky to pull off this kind of acting, like to have something that is deadpan but interesting. Yeah, so... I think even, I think Colin Farrell was given a character that, as I said, is consistently very low-key, consistently very minimalistic. He's, he's not given any... Um, he's not given a lot of scenes that require great emotional range, and yet he completely nails it. Yeah, yeah, he, he totally nails it. Rachel Weisz nails it. Um, you know, uh, I mean, Al, Al Pacino can suck it as far as <laughs> being a blind actor, like after seeing her in this movie. Hooah. Uh, yeah, John C. Riley commands his list. Um, 
Yeah, like yeah, he uh, on a shallow level, like what do you think of how he looked in the movie? That I thought was a key thing. The fact that you know here's a guy who you know we've seen so many movies be like such a heartthrob, and here he has like the face of Joaquin Phoenix and her (laughs) with like the glasses and the mustache, which is like. Man, like either you will be so heavily attracted to that, or you will so not be. And I, he has the, and he has the punch. I'm glad that they had him look like a human being. Yeah, I did too. I think that was, if he looked too good, you would almost think like, why wouldn't he snag like a woman right away? Like he he needed to look a little bit less like Colin Farrell usually does, if that makes sense. Yeah, I. I think he, he went. He went the Christian Bale in uh, um, uh, American Hustle route, <laughs> only without like the, the whole thing about disguises. <laughs> um, yeah. So let's. Uh, I don't know if I had too much. I, I don't know what I'm trying to think of other things I want to say about. I mean, again, I I can't stress enough how much I love this movie. Like I and oh, what I wanted to get back to from way back at the start of the podcast. I mentioned Green Room, and I mentioned The Witch. Yeah. And I mentioned for a reason, because I think all three of those movies, I feel like, are very 2016. I know it sounds like a weird point to make, especially because, like, The Witch and The Lobster technically were released last year. Actually, it's fu- actually, no, all three movies are from last year. Okay. They actually only got released this year. I, I, why, I, you know, again, I don't, I don't work at A24, I don't know why. But... It's like these are all kind of like horror movies. Yeah. In certain way. Also the music in this movie, lots of harsh strings. You feel like at times like especially with those having harsh strings and having shots which are very detached looking down long corridors of a hotel. Yeah. Uh paging Mr. Kubrick. <laughs> like this is like a, a bit of overtones of the shining. Um, I don't know. Do you th- do you feel like there's some kind of message? The fact that all three of these movies with like satanic witches and Nazis <laughs> and uh, crustaceans <laughs> are, you know, it, it almost feels like a reaction to Trump or something. Well, <laughs> I know it sounds like an odd question, but there I'm... are there are moments of violence in the Lobster. Moments of I would say even intense violence. And Some of it not shown on screen, though, which almost yeah. makes it more horrific because then you think about it in your mind. But, again, that violence is delivered in such a casual way. Yeah. And the characters in the film are so emotionally disconnected from physical pain delivered to other individuals. So the characters are not just cold in how they react to each other emotionally, but the characters are completely incapable of empathy. Yes. For either the physical or emotional suffering of others. So I think there is these like punctuating moments of violence that are very disturbing because of what they reveal about the characters specifically how the characters are completely unaffected by this violence, but they're also shot in a way that's, like, kind of funny. Yes. For instance. Yeah. There's this scene. Well, Green Room isn't very funny. No, I'm just talking about the lobster. (laughs) But there's this scene where a character says she's going to commit suicide if she's not matched. Yes. And the problem is her hotel room is on the first floor, which isn't very conducive (sighs) to suicide. Yeah. And she tells the Colin Farrell character she's going to go up to a higher floor and kill herself. But she doesn't do this. She tries to jump out of her first floor window to kill herself. And lo and behold, she's lying like splat on the pavement, kind of like a a wounded like uh, like roadkill. Yeah, so she jumps out the first floor window. She lands on, like, a concrete driveway, and she's obviously seriously injured. Her limbs are twisted in odd ways. She's bleeding profusely from a head wound, and she's screaming. Yeah, and uh, Colin Farrell basically remarks, I hope she, like, dies right away. And nobody else 
in the scene because there are several kind of extras that are in the scene in the background. Yeah. Nobody has any response to this, but I found the scene very chilling, but I also found it funny. Yeah. You, you like, this is a movie where you laugh. And like I said, you, you feel like, again, there are moments where it feels like this is all, like, is this an evil movie where it's like, yeah. it's so vicious, but, but, and yet it's not at the same time because it's so, like provocative with its message it it it, it really cha- it kind of challenges you like you'll laugh and then be like what a horrible thing that just happened yeah you'll laugh and you'll kind of be a little ashamed of yourself for it's laughing. that scene of uh it's like there's certain moments in louis that are like that when you like <laughs> you know like uh there's that classic moment where he's like in bed with like that random chick out in the Hamptons and like she's trying to like tickle him I think yeah and then like he just like not intentionally but he like punches her and knocks her out yeah (laughs) and you kind of like that's hilarious but you also think like oh god (laughs) that's a lot of that there's a lot of (laughs) oh god (laughs) watching this movie um so final thoughts final thoughts See this movie early and often. Yes. I, I I don't know if I could see it right away again, because it almost, like, it put me through, like, a certain emotional rigor. Yeah. Through, like, everything about it, through how it's shot, through how it's acted, through all of its themes. Um, you know, to me, I'm a huge fan of dystopian, of great dystopian fiction. I mean, Brave New World and, as I mentioned, Fahrenheit, uh, Philip K. Dick, like, that that type of level of greatness is what this has. And I, uh, I cannot stress enough that this is like, if you're looking for something challenging, like genuinely challenging, uh, on multiple levels, um, Lanthimos is, uh, I, I I say this without, no, without, without hyperbole, he's one of our new masters of cinema. Yeah. This movie is very thought provoking. It's very complex, but it's also highly watchable and highly entertaining. Yeah. And I don't want people to have it. It doesn't have a eat your vegetables quality to it. No, at all. it's not quite that. No, uh, but at the same time, this also it wasn't. It also wasn't for for someone like you. I know too weird can be a problem for you. Like, yeah. Because I know Holy Motors is something that I tried to get you into, and you were just like, I can't. I don't get it. So. I should say, you don't have to have a huge taste for avant-garde cinema to appreciate this movie. Because for me, Jack is a lot more tolerant of experimental film than I am. For me, I enjoy a lot of so-called art films, but for me, I need a movie to make sense, and I need a movie to have some kind of narrative cohesiveness. I feel like this has both. And this does. So I would say this movie is very thought-provoking and challenging, but it doesn't feel like a chore to watch. Because I know some, like, supposedly classic films or supposed art films are really kind of... They feel like you're doing homework, and that's right. Sure, yeah. This movie's not like that at all. Yeah, like, when I mentioned Robert Brisson before, like, I with maybe one or two exceptions a lot like watching his movies are a little bit like homework to me. Like I, I watch those and I know, okay, I've watched this. Now I can talk about it with such and such a group with this. I, you know, I, I mean, are what I recommend it to every single person on earth? No, but you, you're looking for something genuinely different and you like these actors then go for it. If you like Colin Farrell, if you like Rachel Weiss and John C. Riley, hell, if you even, I can't even believe I'm saying this because I'm not even, I haven't really watched a lot of their stuff. If you like Tim and Eric skits, I think you'll like this movie. This almost feels like Tim and Eric does Kafka, does <laughs> Fassbender, does, uh, blah, with the touches of Wes Anderson, Charles, but it's all this guy. So, um, yeah, so go the lobster. It's it's quite a rock lobster. Go see it. Support movies like this. 
free us from the tyranny of endless remakes and sequels and reboots. See an original movie for once in your life. Yes, free us from, like, if this is playing near you, take a chance. See it with your wife or husband. Yes. See it on a date and... It's a good date and movie. You could test compatibility. <laughs> at the end of it, you can turn to your partner and say, so did you like it? And if the other person says no, leave that person. Yes. Break, <laughs> break up with someone who doesn't like this movie. Yes. Um, so with that, um, I'm Jack. And I'm Corey. And remember, the wages of cinema is... what Marriage. I- Oh, why I oughta <laughs> bang zoom, Alice! Bang zoom! <laughs> hey, you've got to have-